And welcome to another episode of G220 Radio. This is Ricky Gantz with Mike Miller. And we are here with you tonight. Excited to be starting our family series. We're here at episode number 562. 562, like I said, we're jumping into this family series. And tonight we're going to be talking about the theology of marriage. Bum, bum, bum. (laughs) Next week we'll be on Twitch. Oh, we're gonna be on Twitch. Woo! I'm I'm assuming we're gonna get canceled. Who knows? <laughs> I don't even know uh, what is Twitch. I mean, I've heard of it, but I don't know what it mainly is. Yeah, a lot of people do gaming streaming. That's what kind of Twitch has mm. been. Is that's the niche? Is you go to Twitch and you you stream that way. And so, um, I think. Um, Alpha and Omega Ministries, James White, I think they now exclusively stream on uh, Twitch. They seem to wow. be a little bit more open and less hostile as Alphabet and YouTube is. Yeah, well, we'll see how that goes. Uh, that'll be exciting. We are on uh, Twitter. We're on YouTube and Facebook Live. I don't know where you're watching from tonight if you are watching i know there are some watching so let us know uh comment in the comment section are you watching on facebook uh youtube uh if you're watching on twitter you can comment on it on twitter we probably won't see that till later uh because uh our melon does not connect us to the 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 comments that come through uh twitter but they do for youtube and facebook and so we want to know where you're watching from uh so please uh go ahead and send us a message there and let us know what uh platform you are watching on you know i think it's a very interesting we're starting this series uh the family series on um theology of marriage tonight and we're going to get into other aspects of it uh throughout the first quarter of this year and so really looking forward to digging into this um and so just to get started i mean Thinking about this topic, theology of marriage, why is this so important? If you were to go into a Christian bookstore, which no longer really exists, um, actual stores, I don't think. There may be a few out there. I'm not sure. Uh, but I think it's like part, Mardell. Yeah, I don't know what Mardell is. Is, is, it, Mar- is it a chain Mar- or is it? It is. And it's owned by the Green family, the family who owns Hobby Lobby. So, oh, okay. So they had there them a is, lot in, in like Oklahoma City. Okay, well in Oklahoma City, I know in in our area there's no more. There used to be Family Christian uh, store. Um, yeah, you can go, you can go online to these places, but if you were to walk into one of them, I know when they did have one locally to us. Even uh, what is the uh, Southern Baptist one that um, they had? They may have closed some of them down. Lifeway, oh, Lifeway or was yeah. it? Lifeway was another one. If you were to go into these stores, you go to the family or the marriage section and you're going to find an endless supply of books dealing with marriage, dealing with family, dealing with parenting. There's so many out there. You think of Focus on the Family is one that, that comes to mind. Um, family Life. And I think it is family life that I would hear on Moody Radio would have these weekend to remember um, getaways where, you know, married couples could go and and they'd spend a weekend. They'd have some speakers or whatnot and spend a time together. And there would be other um, married couples there, uh, Christian married couples, I, I would assume, or maybe maybe there's some that aren't, but there to have this getaway to try to strengthen their marriage. There's so much out there. It's like a big money business within Christian circles with this family um, books on marriage, like I said, parenting and whatnot. Um, not that a book isn't helpful. I mean, I think we would have we would say there are some books on families or books on parenting or or even books on marriages that can be helpful for us to read and to glean from. But a lot of these, I mean, I'm just looking at. If you go to the Christian family bookstore, I mean, there's so many things in here. Um, you've got, I think of, uh, what's the guy's name with the five love languages? Gary Chapman. Uh, okay. There's just so many. And you go down to this uh, family selections. There's books on marriages, husbands, wives, divorce pre- prevention, divorce care, 
parenting, single parenting, aging parenting, single life, family finances, home uh, organization, and family fitness, family fitness. And so there is a market for these things. But ultimately, I think we as Christians glean the most from the Word of God. And, I, and again, I want to say that I know there are some good godly men out there who have written on these topics that glean their insights from the scriptures, but there's a plethora of them that are more self-help, more worldly practices and ways in which you can improve your, your marriages or improve your family life that aren't really getting their insights from the scripture. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, that's Christian publishing in general nowadays, I would yeah. argue. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's probably, I mean, it's maybe more prevalent because we're it's easier to print books now than it has been um, with it. Um, and I think, you know, in light of that, though, and we would agree with this, that this is an important topic mm-hmm. and it requires the the thinking and the, the careful, especially as the culture changes as the ebbs and flow of time goes. I mean, there are the, the, the core truths that make up what is marriage and how all of this works, which we find, but we should also realize that sometimes books, especially good books helps us to think about these truths in light of our current situation mm-hmm. in this kind of last day. And I think just having the plethora of, of books indicates that you know how important this topic really is and especially in a no-fault divorce era when marriages more often than not tend to fail now you have the research whether you agree with it or not and how they define christian may or may not be how we would define a christian but the surveys show that at least those who claim to be Christians, divorce is equal to those that aren't Christians. Mm-hmm. Now there's also, you know, dealing with cohabitation and how does that work out and just all the other issues that flow from the family. And so it is important. It is probably the second most important thing that we can know mm-hmm. outside of, you know, the word in the gospel and who God is, but it's when we know who God is and how he's created us that we can now develop kind of this important understanding of what is family and how then that shapes how we live within this family that God, that God get graciously gives us. Yeah. And and one of the things that I think we, as Christians, most likely the majority of Christians would say today in the culture and society in which we live in, that the family is under attack. Marriage is under attack. Um, mm-hmm. You have the, the government wanting to force and push down upon um, society the mirage of same-sex marriages these these aren't real marriages but they want to push this down they want to take your children in the public schools and indoctrinate them with ideas and beliefs Mm -hmm. that are contrary to the word of god they are after our families and so as christians this is a very very important topic um it's it's an institution that has been given to us by god uh, and and we are to guard it, we are to protect it, we are to fight for it, and we are to uh, do our best to glorify God in it, in the family unit. Um, we don't always do that. We fall short because we are sinful uh, human beings that have the flesh, but that's not an excuse. I'm just saying we we have the flesh that remains that we are fighting against, but this is what God has ordained and the, and the institution he has given to us, and so therefore Ultimately, everything we do is to should be done to the glory of God, and that would include our family lives. And so I hope that uh, this series will challenge you and challenge us and, and help you 
uh, to kind of look at some of these things when we deal with family life. And so one of the things that as I was considering this is looking at the downgrade, because again, as I said, we could look at our society today and say, hey, marriage is under attack. The family's under attack. You know, they're after our kids, like I said. But we've also seen this downgrade, this progression play out in television. When you go back to the old television shows, when it was the representation of the family, there was a strong family unit. The fathers were looked at as intelligent, smart, leading their family, being the heads of their home. To when then you progress and you think of series that have gone for a very long time on TV, like The Simpsons uh, or the one Married with Children show, where they make the husbands look like imbeciles, look like they're ignorant. Um, they make the they they just make they make the family look like a mockery. And then in even in a lot of Disney shows, when it's about these children, they make the children look smarter than the parents and they outwit the parents. They outsmart the parents and the parents don't even know what's going on, don't have a clue. Right. And so it's this degrading of this institution in which God has given to us. And so I want to play this clip. Hopefully we don't get uh, shut down off YouTube for this clip, but uh, it's uh, uh, about a minute and something. You was going to say something, Mike? No. Okay. Uh, from the um, Father Knows Best series from, I think, around the 50s, I think it was, uh, 50s, 60s. And this was from a Thanksgiving episode. I don't have all the context for it, but it was a Thanksgiving episode. And you're going to see them sit down as a family and give thanks with prayer as a family. So let's look at this. Betty gets some play. Kathy, you sit there. Bud, pull up a chair. Now, get this one for Mommy. There's nothing like hamburgers for Thanksgiving. Oh, I'm starving. <laughs> oh, my. You know something? This is the happiest unhappy Thanksgiving I've ever spent. <laughs> and I feel I'd like to say thanks in a rather special way. Oh, Lord. We give thee thanks from the depths of our humble hearts for all the blessings thou hast seen fit to bestow upon us. We thank thee for the food which graces our table, the roof which covers our head. We thank thee for the privilege of living as free men in a country which respects our freedom and our personal rights to worship and think and speak as we choose. We thank thee for making us a family for giving us sincerity and understanding. But most of all, dear Lord, we thank thee for giving us the greatest gift a family may know, the gift of love for one another. Amen. Amen. Now, do they make television like that today? <laughs> I mean, do, do you see families praying uh, when they sit down in their television sitcoms and, and, and giving thanks to the Lord uh, for the family and the love that we can have for one another within the family? As I said, what we see is this downgrade over time where that's become a mockery, you know, and you don't you don't necessarily see that. And unfortunately, even apart from TV, you don't often find that within the family homes of Christians. I know myself growing up, we would have claimed to be Christians. I will tell you, we were not. But my parents would have believed that they were Christians because they said a prayer. They, they believed in Jesus, and, and but nothing in their life had changed. But we didn't sit down as a family and pray. We didn't do devotions as a family. Uh, we didn't like talk about the things of God outside of church. I don't even think we really talked about them at church as a family or on our way to church. So that's why this is so vitally important. Yeah, and I think it just shows how how far we have gone. And that was, I mean, there's a reciprocal aspect of it with it, too. And, I mean, you, you've mentioned some older, more modern shows, late 90s, 80s, 90s. Um, but even newer shows replay the same idea. But it, it's reciprocal that 
they portray the culture and then they also then turn around and shape the culture as I'm watching it, as I see it. And for to, to even think about how that, what TV does, what it shows and kind of the idea of visual images um, goes with it, just kind of continues to promote these wrong views. Even newer shows try to normalize sinful behavior. And that's all kind of part of the play, a part of the move. And I guess, I mean, and to take seriously the fact that not only do you have the devil who wants to destroy marriage because it's a good thing from God, and that's what evil does. Evil destroys good. Um, the culture is influenced by sinful men. Again, that without the righteousness of God will continue to destroy what is good because evil destroys good. It doesn't produce anything but destruction and nothingness. Mm -hmm. And so we shouldn't be surprised, I guess, in one sense that we see the culture repeatedly and continue to grow these false ideas because they hate what is good and which then means because God instituted marriage, that marriage is good. Yeah, absolutely. So as we, we dig into this, um, looking at God's design, how God has instituted marriage. We go to, you know, the first couple chapters of Genesis. We see the overview of the creation. Um, then we, we see in Genesis 2, he brings it more specific down to the creation of man. And we look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25, which is really dealing with what is going on in this creation of man. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and read this here, uh, verse four, all the way down. So it says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the earth, of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made a spring up every tree, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold is of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river was Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded that the man, commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for that day that you eat of it. You shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, and this is where we're going to get into now. God's going to make it known to us, the reader. Uh, he, he says, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, it was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. 
So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last, th this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Now that's a lot there to read, reading that, that chapter, but that's the foundation of the theology of marriage. God says it is not good for man to be alone. And so there are things that we can see from this, um, just from that passage. We see God is bringing the animals to Adam, and he is naming them. And he's seeing, okay, these, these lions, there's these pairs of lions. You've got, they have more than, than you know, they have a helper. They have something that's suitable for them. That's in their likeness. There's nothing for me. Making it apparent to Adam, there's nothing suitable for me, which eliminates just from right there. Um, it eliminates the idea that man can be with beast. Okay, so that bestiality that that's it's there in the text. It, it's just that's not what God is intended. That's not what God made. He's bringing these animals to Adam, to Adam, and he's seeing there's not one suitable for me. And then we see God says it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make for him a helper, a uh, fit for him. And he causes the man to sleep, and he brings to him a woman. He brings one woman. Uh, he doesn't bring another man. He, it's one woman. So we see from this creation, man and woman. One man, one woman. And the fact that it's one woman that he brings, he doesn't bring more than one woman to Adam. He brings one. That does away with polygamy, this idea that you can have multiple wives. So there's so much there that we're seeing just in this text from the very creation of how God is intending this marriage to be. Yeah, and there's there's even more. So you get mm -hmm. to verse 21 where Adam or God takes one of Adam's ribs to create woman. So while he names her and he has an kind of an authority to put over her or over her there is this then idea that he's she's not under him she's not lesser than him and so that a man and a woman are equal in value a man's not worth more because he's has the authority he's not better than because he has authority but they're equal and yet the man is to be the one who rules the family he has that naming he names them just like as god told tells us in chapter one that man will have dominion over the beasts of the fields now here we see that adam names his wife so that places him in authority over him, over her, and how the family dynamics works. And it's even played out in verse 24 that the man is to take charge and leave his family and to hold fast then to his wife. And so there is... Again, this idea of they're, they're equals, in, but the man leads there in the family. Mm. And then just the, the sheer intimacy between them in verse 25. They were naked and they were not ashamed. It's a place of to, to show their... To, I guess, how do, how do I, I want to phrase this? Um, it's a place in which they don't have to be ashamed to be with each other. There shouldn't be a guilt. It's not like Adam when he sins and now hides from God in chapter 3. And they're, they're ashamed to see each other without clothes on. 
I think there's theological implications there, mm-hmm. but that a man and his wife have a, a different type of relationship in which there should be nothing, no guilt, no, they shouldn't be shamed when together. And we would go because of sinfulness that that togetherness is behind closed doors. It is for them alone to become intimate and, and together as that one flesh. Yeah. And when we go to, even in the new Testament in first Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verses 11 and 12, because we see in, in, in Genesis here that God says that he is going to make a, a helper that's fit for Adam, one that's going to come and help, that's going to um, come alongside, as you said, Mike, you know, equal to, but yet God, or God has still appointed the man as the head, is going to come alongside and be this helper that's suitable. Because when he places him in the garden, there's he's tasked with work. And so now you have this helper that's coming alongside to help him in his endeavors that God has commanded and called for us to do. Um, because we are created in his image and we're Ephesians 2 10 says he's created us to do good works and so <clears throat> he's given us uh, a helpmeet to come alongside and to do that especially within the family unit uh, and we'll talk about that more when we get into I think next week when we talk about the roles of the husband and the roles of the wife within this family structure right and so but in in first Corinthians 11, 11 and 12, Paul's reiterating the fact that woman is made for man. Um, and he says, um, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For at, for as woman was made from man, so man now is born of woman. So all, and it says, um, and all things are from God. So you see this now that even though woman comes from man, comes from the rib of man created, uh, or God creating from the rib of man, man now comes from woman. And, and this is all this, this cycle that we see. And um, it's just, it's a beautiful way in which God has designed life to produce. Cause he also tells Adam and Eve in the, in the garden, be fruitful and multiply. Right. We see this also then with Noah before the flood, he, he tells him and I'll be fruitful and multiply. And, and so we see this to subdue the earth and, and to, to he's given man dominion. I don't want to sound too much post-millennial, but take dominion over the world, right? So, um, but that's what we see being laid out for us here. Yeah, and even in Genesis, you get this idea that they're to work together and the spread of the garden. Mm-hmm. Um, which is to be the dwelling place of God. So man and woman combined help to have dominion right. over the earth. And I mean, I don't, it's not a post-millennial view. It's just a Christian view that I know, but every regard- time you say dominion, it's like, Oh no, these post-millennials. Yeah. I mean, as a pre-millennial, I would say you're supposed to have dominion too. That we, we do, we take we take what God has given to us and we rule over it. We make it better. We do it for his glory. And we do that not only by the works of our hands and the act of gardening, but by the fruit of this relationship between a man and a woman and the bearing and raising up of children in order to perpetuate this cultivating of the world. And that i mean the the garden was supposed to be and as symbolize the dwelling place of god god's dwelling garden that's how the ancient world saw this and to think about it in that way is that god to to have man work with his wife to subdue the earth there we can see, I mean, you mentioned earlier that, that connectedness, the togetherness, that it is good for man to not be alone mm-hmm. and to, and to do that. But I mean, there's so many rabbit trails I can go on. Yeah. 
try well, not we're, to. We're definitely going to break this down more in the series when we get into, like I said, next week, the roles of a man and the roles of a woman within the marriage and then the guarding of that marriage. We're going to get into divorce and remarriage in this series. Um, and we're going to get into parenting uh, in this series. And so those you can look forward to uh, in the next coming uh, weeks and month. And so it's there. One of the other things that I found very fascinating in reading this um, <clears throat> and looking at this is, and I see this in society today. This is why I wanted to bring this up and touch on this next point. In Genesis one twenty seven, it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And when you look at the word for man in Genesis one twenty seven in the Hebrew, uh, it's Adam, right? And so it's the name in which Adam is given, this name of Adam. But it's also can be, it's also referring to man. It's referring to mankind. It's the Adam, right? But this name is given to both Adam and Eve, both to the male and female, together, together when they're together to show that connectedness together. But I also found this interesting and in, 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 as something to think about and ponder today in society are um, a custom that we have and uh, which goes back to even when you see the lines, the lineage, it's always the man is this one that's referred to. And then when we see that, that God will at times in his word say the, the he'll, he'll put in the, the, the um, Rebecca or, uh, Rahab, the harlots, or, or you know Ruth, the Moabitess. He'll put those things in there, but it's ultimately the man is always portrayed as the name of that family unit. And except for our society today, and maybe this is due to to feminism, uh, the reversal of the roles, you know, because in Genesis it says that Genesis three, because of the the fall that man will rule over the woman, but the woman's going to have this incl inclination of this desire to want to rule over the man. And so you see sometimes where the woman won't take the man's last name in their marriage. And I've even seen cases where the husband has taken the last name of the, the woman, but that is a, that is a, a reversal of wit in which God has de designed and created his creation to be. The man is the head not the woman the head. It's this reversal of the roles in the name. And then you usually see that play out. I, From personal experience, I've seen these things play out where the woman is the more dominant one leading that family. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think it just further shows the lunacy, for lack of a better word, of of sin and the destruction of what God has created. God has mm. created marriage. He created it good. It's a, it's in, in some sense, a, a, ref, a reflection. I mean, it is a reflection between Christ's love for the church, but, uh, you know, it's that the reflection of what is, lovely and beautiful and good mm -hmm. and then what comes out of it and so to and so you have part of that but then also it's in one sense i think feminism i mean you can't say feminism hasn't affected this um whether directly or indirectly of just having this emphasis on the equality between males and females mm -hmm. that in the end we're we are just equal and even to the fact of like denying um the difference just physiologically between males and females and to 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 think about again that that sinful thinking and destroying what god has deemed as good that the husband/father 
or at the time it would be he would be a husband, not a father. But the husband, the man leaves his father's mother and he holds fast to his wife in this union in which he leads the family and how these things do. And I know we'll probably talk about this even a little bit more, but even in Proverbs, you know, there is equality there. The children are to listen to the instructions both from their father and their mother. They're not to turn their ears against their instruction. But it's Solomon writing the book to his son mm-hmm. on how he should act. Here Solomon is is given the instructions into how to 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 raise the kids. And I think that's again kind of mentioning it when you kind of start neglecting taking the the male taking the female last name or the female not taking a last the male's last name kind of shows an independence like it's yeah not a- shows the independence <clears throat> and 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 a strive for kind of this equality mm-hmm. that obviously we haven't denied here we we say women are equal to men and their value before God they're equally the image of God but that God has set and there is that kind of rebellious we know what's right, what's good, in light of what God has said is right and good. Yeah. So that brings us into to our next point in what also is God's design within the garden. And, and Mike, you, you alluded to this already, but <clears throat> the idea that marriage is covenantal and it's a picture. God gives us marriage mm-hmm. and he uses this as the ultimate picture of Christ and his church, the bride, Christ and the bride. He dies for the bride, lays down his life for the bride. And so when we go to Ephesians, we also see this in Revelation. There's the mention of this, the marriage uh, lamb, marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. This bride, again, being the church, uh, we see it in in uh, Revelation 21, uh, 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So this imagery that God gives us within the family has a purpose and a meaning behind it as well, where we see this imagery of Christ being the husband and the church being the bride of Christ. And so Ephesians uh, chapter five, Mike, are you there? 25 and 27. Okay. You want to read those? After I cough. Um, so husband said 25 and 27, 25 through 27. Yes, through 27 and verse 32 yeah. as well. Or you could just okay. go from 32. Um, Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church and give himself for her that he might sanctify her through cleansing her by the washing of water and the word so that he might have present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or in or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies who has loved his wife loves himself for he who hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are the members of the one body. Therefore, man should leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that just tr- this truth refers to Christ and the church. However, let you love, le- let each of you, each one of you, love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she is respects that she respects her husband. The first thing that jumped out at me. Now, obviously, we want to show this this mystery here. This speaking of Christ and the bride this imagery that's given to us. But I, I thought it was interesting because we just talked about the leaving and cleaving and Paul's bringing that up to the church in Ephesus here in verse 31. Mm-hmm. He says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. It's this repeating of what we've mentioned in, in Genesis. God is laying this back again out here um, and showing this importance of marriage. And then the imagery that it makes this covenantal and it ultimately Christ is the husband The bride is the church, and he makes a covenant with the church. In this new covenant, he does not abandon the church. He does not divorce the church. He does not 
leave the church. He dies for her. He loves her, right? And he even calls the man to love, or the husband to love the wife as he loves the church. Yeah, and I think you add on to it when you think about what Christ does for the church is not he leads the church. Mm-hmm. He sent a helper to help the church and he protects the church. I mean, what does he say to Paul on the road to Damascus? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Mm-hmm. But Saul hasn't persecuted the Christ, but he's protecting his church, his bodies. And I think when we, we think about this and a lot of times, you know, verse 22 People get upset because it says wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. But where does Paul spend the most time? Not on wives submitting to their husbands, but on husbands telling them to love their wives. And this is how you love them. You love them like Christ loves the church. Ultimately, your marriage reflects, was designed for this greater imagery so that we can see the importance of our salvation and what what Christ bought with his death resurrection and then that he again as you said doesn't forsake them that he like I mean he might sanctify them cleanse them like he's He's loving them to present them to the Father, holy and blameless and without blemish. And now as husbands, we're called to do the same, to love our wives in a sacrificial way to, we can't present them as without spots or without, or being with holy or without blemish. But we are to, to love them in a way that reflects what Christ would do for his own church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there there's other passages, like I said, I've mentioned uh, <clears throat> the Revelation. Uh, there's even the mention of this in First or Second Corinthians chapter 11, 1 through 4, where Paul is speaking to the church in Corinth, and he says to him in verse Two, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband, again, showing this husbandry to Christ, uh, he says, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ, which we hear this imagery, it's spoken of in other places in the scripture, that we're going to be presented before him as his bride, the spotless lamb before Christ. And so this imagery is there. It's it's given to us in the scripture. It's laid out. This is a covenant, covenantal um binding marriage this this unit that god brings together it's covenantal it shows the covenantal aspect and the imagery of christ and his bride and and we see that another aspect of uh, the theology of marriage as we continue is bringing forth godly children so you're commanded to love your wife and then you and your wife together are to be fruitful and to multiply now we understand there are sometimes circumstances where the womb is barren, where a woman is unable to have the children and their uh, couple is unable to, to, to do that. But God is telling us to be fruitful and multiply. And so those that are able and do so, um, this is, you're bringing these children into the world. I was speaking to my wife about this, uh, in talking about Islam, Islam continues to grow through having lots of children. They populate. Christians have That's how kind my of, church grows. Yeah, but Christians, for the most part in America, um, not all of them. Obviously, you said your church is growing that way, and 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 there are many that do, probably more in the reform circles. But there's been this idea that I know we have a large family, and you get these looks sometimes, like oh, it's the minivan people, you know, or it's the the van people, and there's these comments mm-hmm. that are made in joking fashion. But it's it's really sort of an attack on the family, whether they realize it or not. These jokes is a maligning of the family, and this is what God has instructed. Back then, they would have lots of families. But like I said, Islam, or lots of children, but Islam, and that's considered a blessing to have a, what do they say, a quiver full, right? And yeah. so you have Islam that's populating and continuing to spread their ideology 
and their beliefs and their religion through, let's have lots of children, let's spread this out. Christians have pulled back from that, and they're not having as many children, and they're not raising them to know the Lord. Even whether you have a lot of children or, or a, a, a smaller amount of children, you know, or less children, it, we're to raise them to know the Lord. We're to bring up these godly children. And we will get into more of that when we get into uh, parenting as well. But Mike, anything you want to add? <clears throat> yeah, I think there's, you know, there's probably good reasons that some families may not, may choose to have a smaller family. And there may be bad reasons, sinful reasons um, to, to consider that too. But I think even in, in this age, we talk about like what uh, TV has shown us. And you see this, it's, there is this even idea that the burdensome of children that is given, that they're not a blessing, that you shouldn't have them. You have people in politics saying, well, we need to have less children so that we don't continue the impact of global warming or other issues environmentally. Um, obviously, they've flown over Wyoming, have never been to Wyoming. And to well, consider to think, China with uh, yeah, they had the one the child one, policy one child. And now there's, isn't there like, there's so many men and a small mm -hmm. amount of women, you're going to yeah. kill off your own population. Yeah, there's, I think last time I heard, it's like one male for every three, three males for every one female. Don't quote me. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that you have that. And now China has to reconsider this one child policy. And because of the Chinese culture and the the meaning of having a male offspring has led to a lot of abortions of females. It's interesting to consider that birth rates, when you don't have interference like this, tend to hover around 50% in a, in a normal distribution. And almost as if it was created that way. And to, to think about kind of that understanding with children, how we view our children, because I mean, they're little sinners. Let's just put it that way. And they're hard. Um, but God honors children. Um, I, I think of Shylin's song um, for kids and telling them about trying to his trying to urge kids to have faith. The last story is about when the little kid brought some loaves and fishes. He wasn't he was he he was willing to share. He had kind of this idea of faith and we see the blessings that children can have in these ways and kind of in a more kind of innocent in, in one aspect um, of the lives, but even just kind of their importance for families. If mm -hmm. everyone stopped to have children's, the, the human population would die out within, you know, 40, 50 years. Yeah. 60 years. So like you just, you lose that kind of the importance of children and, and what they, and what they do. And then also the fact that they're called to have dominion over the earth mm -hmm. and to be fruitful, multiply. And now you're not giving them the opportunity to do what you've had the opportunity of what God has given or what God wants us to be doing. Yeah. Another aspect of this, when we look at the design of God's that he's given to us in the garden, creating man and woman, and then because of the fall, the sinfulness of flesh, but 
marriage is also a protection from uh, a sexual protection from fornication and from you know adulteries and things like that they do happen but paul writes this and because of the sinfulness of man but paul writes in first corinthians 7 of uh, chapter 7 verse 2 and 3 and principles for marriages here is what paul has given and he says <clears throat> he says now um concerning the matters about which you wrote in verse 1 it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman He's saying, but, verse 2, because of the temptations to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. And this is this protection that God has given within the bounds of marriage. See, marriage is to be given as to be fruitful and multiply, but it's also for the enjoyment of a husband and wife to enjoy one another in this. And so... If you're not withholding these things, if you're, uh, as Paul's saying, this is a protection so that you then don't go outside of that to fulfill those sexual desires. Yeah, again, God created us in this way. He's given this us this gift that brings enjoyment, heightened awareness, and to i guess and and to bring glory to himself the enjoyment that we should also find in Christ i think i i don't think i heard in a lecture that i haven't proved this so take it as a grain of salt i guess the why you see song of solomon in the early church the medieval church and even the reformation era always looking at it yes it's this letter between solomon and his lover and it is very intimate it is very deep and you get the feelings and this repeated call to not awaken love beforehand that as they move towards um marriage and the benefits that a man and a half man and wife have in marriage but that that was a reflection of our enjoyment in Christ, the ecstasy we are to experience in the Savior. It's not the same type of ecstasy that happens um, in marriage, but that kind of enjoyment with each other where we are not ashamed to come before the Lord. And to experience it, I think there is value in to consider what does it mean to have these, this enjoyment, not just physically, but also a life in which love is cultivated in marriage mm. to set and be intentional, which I'm not always great at but be intentional about spending time with each other minus kids. Like I know for some families that's more difficult. Mm -hmm. We, and a lot of times we'll just pick a night, usually Friday or Saturday night, mostly more Friday nights um, and try to keep Saturday a little bit more devotional and preparing for Sunday but like Friday nights, just to enjoy each other's company, watching a movie, watching for us Chopped Cutthroat Kitchen, some cooking competition show, um, and just to enjoy each other's company, to be with each other and not be, you know, daddy and mommy, mm -hmm. but husband and wives and to, to, to be that, to be that way and to, again, giving up myself to, to have my wife know me because I love her as my own body and for her to do the same thing to me so that we're not afraid, we're not shameful, but can come together in unity um, in these different ways. And so I think, you know, even the relations in a bed is – is one sense is 
the the pinnacle of what all of this is, but it's it's all of it. And to love your wife and to 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 put that relationship. It's a relationship that needs to be worked on and to be built on. And that cultivates that kind of that joy of the the intimate experience that they get to have with each other. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> That's good, Mike. Now we're going to kind of move a little faster here. Um, and uh, some of this will be covered next week when we get into the, the, the role of the man, uh, role of the woman, uh, and then the protection of marriage as well in that. But in dealing with uh, the theology of marriage, there is the headship and the authority that is there uh, for the man. Um, and a couple words that I wanted to put out here is indicatives and imperatives, because <clears throat> you see these often in scripture. These indicatives uh, are statements of fact, statement of, statements of fact, such as uh, it doesn't say that the husband, um, it's not a command that husband, hey, you need to be the head of your wife. It's an, it's an uh, indicative. It's a statement of fact. Husbands are the head of their wives the head of their wives, not multiple wives, but in the way that it's written, right? So um, these are indicatives and imperatives are commands. It's a command. And so often we can get in trouble when we look at the scriptures and we misapply these indicatives and imperatives. Um, There's statements of fact, and then there's commands that are given, right? And so, for example, uh, here you have an imperative, husbands, love your wives. It's a command, love them. Um, and you have wives submit to your own husbands. It's a command, right? And so you see these there. Mike, any quick thoughts on indicatives and imperatives here? Yeah, I mean, these get people in so much trouble that, like, we could do a whole entire show on this. But I think another kind of even just relate to us is the indicative of seeing what the Bible calls faithful believers. You think of David and the fact that they sinned in having multiple wives. Now we see what happens and the kind of some of the, the foolishness that will um, go even in David's life or, but those are, they're telling us we know about them, but that doesn't make it imperative. Like, what other religions who may call themselves Christians would hold to. And, but that too, as, as we mentioned that the, the call to leave your mother and your father and cleave to your wife as a husband is an imperative idea. So this does, this plays out even more when we, when we think of, and whole when we consider David's life as a whole, we have to say, well, he disobeyed God by having more than one wife. Mm-hmm. And not only that, he disobeyed the Mosaic law and that he, as a king, was only supposed to have one wife. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have kind of and thinking of that way. And but as readers, we have to be able to discern what that is what those are obviously with the story it's a little bit easier but i mean you have facts like sarah called abraham lord mm-hmm. you know what does that what does that mean should i be calling should my wife be calling me lord when I've she sees me <laughs> i've tried to get my wife like hey you gotta call me lord you know Obviously, that's not the point of the passage. It's being, it's indicative and that it's telling us and showing us that in her time, she respected his authority. Mm -hmm. She respected him. And so, yeah, having this idea, having these categories of what is indicative of kind of being stated as fact, it's not necessarily something we should follow, but it's, if it's in God's word, we should know and we should think about him. But that's different than when we see God through the authors tell us you should do, you should kind of in exhorting us or even the direct command to do something. Yeah. And as you mentioned, respect and, and there um, <clears throat> kind of goes into another when you're looking at headship and authority, 
the love and respect aspect. And you've already read this, but in Ephesians 5.33, it says, However, let each one of you love his wife, speaking of the husband, as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So again, you see this call to love your wife and for the wife to respect her husband. And you're going to see this in this headship and authority playing out within a marriage. <clears throat> and then uh, we also, we, we've talked about this, but there's within this uh, headship and authority that the wife was made for the man. She was made to be this helper that was fit for him. Uh, we, we read that when you look in Genesis 2.18, uh, we see that again in, in 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9, which um, <clears throat> goes back to something we was reading earlier. I don't think we went back that far, but for time's sake, uh, it's 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9. You can look it up. Um, and then it also gives us the idea that we see uh, the wife as being the weaker vessel, right? The weaker vessel. And so um, we see that in 1 Peter 3, 7, and then even... In Genesis 3.16, after they eat, after the fall of man, they eat the fruit that they're not uh, supposed to eat. Um, God tells them that the husband shall rule over you to the wife. And so there is this, this weaker vessel here. And, and I think it's, it's, a, it's an amazing thing when you think about this ultimately, Christ being this husband and the bride being his church, and then this picture that's given Adam and Eve, Adam in the garden, he's told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day that he eats of it, he shall surely die. Eve is then in the garden, and the serpent comes to her and beguiles her, deceives her, and 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 um, tells her to eat of this tree, which she does. And Adam, rather than stomping on that serpent, rather than to being the head and leading and protecting his wife, she partook and gave to him, and he 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 partook as, as well. But you don't see that with Christ. He crushes the head of that serpent, right? And you said he protects his church. He's willing to die for his church. And so you see that in that parallel when you think about this theology of marriage and how this comes all full circle and the scriptures are all together pointing to this redemptive story of Christ, all pointing to Christ, right? Mike, any uh, thoughts before we close it out here, man? Yeah, just continuing that theme paul mentions it's a mystery it was once hidden and it's now revealed and and thinking through that we should see that marriage to god is not an afterthought it was an intentional plan to give us a earthly example of what was going to happen in our salvation God designed marriage for his glory so that we can better understand our salvation and what our Lord will do to us to keep us in our salvation. And to really to think about our relationship with our Savior should directly impact our relationship with our spouses. Mm. And I think, again, to quote, I know it's Shailene, but he's not the first one to say it. But this idea, it was as, as we both become more acquainted with God, we become more acquainted with each other. And I think this, this growing as a family spiritually reflects and changes in good ways when we reflect and change our and add to our ideas of what Christ did for us and how he protects us from Satan. Mm -hmm. He's given us what we need to live in this sinful world. And in doing so, he will change our dirty garments into white and we will be able to worship him forever. And, Marriage points to this very real thing that we just cannot miss in any of our theology. It's so foundational and yet can help us so much in our marriage. Yeah. Amen, brother. It's making me want to go inside and see my family. <laughs> oh, um, 
Next week on G220 Radio, uh, we will be continuing this series. We're going to look at biblical duties of husbands and wives. So tune in with us again next week here on G220 Radio, Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Make sure you share, like, and comment. Uh, We would love to hear from you. Share the episode and like this program. Thank you. That's been G220 Radio. Until next time, God bless.